Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of The Theologian's Table. My name is Tim, and I'm your host. So this podcast, basically, I want you to think that you are taking an intro to Christian theology course, but at someone's dining room table. So it's a little casual. It's my table, so to speak, but my role is to serve you and offer as much as I can on a subject in about 30 to 45 minutes. However, today's going to be a bit longer. Also, if you're looking at your device and you see episodes with a letter next to them, or like the letter A, that means that uh, they're they're episodes from my old podcast. If you like this podcast and you want to support it, you can feel free to click the Patreon page link, which is in the description for this episode, and you can become a patron. And you know what? I I really, I don't hate money, but I hate talking about it. And I hate, like, even asking for it, asking if you want to become a patron, uh, excuse me, a patron. Uh, I'm happy with the recording qu- equipment that I have. Uh, so it's not it's not about new equipment. It's not about shiny new stuff. But there are things like bringing the podcast to a wider audience that I do need help with covering those costs. So what I've done is revamp the Patreon page to have just one tier since I really can't stand money or asking asking for money. But anyways, I call it the anchor tier. And after Patreon and the government take their dues, I think it would average uh, out to be about $5 a month that that I would see on my end. And believe it or not, that actually does go a long way. There is, of course, perks for the patron that go along with that. And like I said, you can find uh, the link for that in the description of this episode. So moving on. Today, or on this episode, I'll be joined by a special guest. But uh, when I do that interview, you may know that there, you may notice that there's going to be a difference in the quality of audio. And that's because the guest joined me uh, via Zoom, and the audio is not as good. I mean, it's still good, but it's not as good as if my guest uh, is in the same room as me. Also, there is a YouTube version of this episode which ve- uh, features the video recording that you get when you do a, a Zoom call. And, and my guest graciously agreed to let me uh, put that on YouTube. So you can go ahead and check that out if, if you'd like. Uh, the link is in the description for this episode. But let's get on to the actual interview. Okay. Uh, I'd like to introduce my guest today. Um, he's theologian Daniel Alvarez. Uh, Dr. Alvarez is senior director of the Global Education Initiatives, uh, and he's also assistant professor of theology at Pentecostal the- Theological Seminary, which is my seminary. Uh, and he's also an avid mountain biker and a great artist too, in my opinion. And he's a, he's also the author of a book entitled 
Latin theology, no, excuse me, Latin identity and pneumatological perspective, which is really a convicting and, and challenging book, which we are going to get into a little bit today. All right, Dr. Alvarez. Hi, Tim. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. This is a, a really important uh, subject for me, getting to know all the different uh, areas of, of theology and how different cultures approach theology. I think it's important Absolutely. for everybody to know. Absolutely. Speaking of contextual theology, which is what we're talking about, for those who don't know what it means, since you are the professor, can you elaborate on what contextual theology is? Yes, this is uh, uh, this is probably uh, the strongest area of, of my work uh, because it deals with this. It, it basically, uh, just to put in layman's terms, it's it's just a way to, that the that culture and uh, uh, culture. It, some people might want to say race. Uh, shapes the way we see the world and the way we see God. And so if if we go and, and see, uh, if we go to a different culture, uh, these people, uh, the people of this different culture, will see, will have a different perspective in the way they see God. And in that way, it enriches our understanding of, of the way we see, the, the way we see God, the way we think about God. And I'll give you just a brief example. We are used to talking about the story of the uh, prodigal son, and, and in our particular culture, in Western culture, we, uh, we, we, it's a story about an individual who gets lost and, 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 is, and finds salvation, is brought back. But a different culture has a different spin on it. And it's, and it's the story, and this is a, a Chinese perspective, we'll see the story of the prodigal son and we'll say, no, this is a story of a broken family. Hmm. Uh, the two sons didn't get along. The father, how can the father let his son go just like that? And, and it puts into perspective that the whole family is restored at the end. It's not just about the individual finding salvation. And so salvation also incorporates the whole family. Uh, how many of us have broken families? How many of us come from uh, families that were dysfunctional? And, and so God's promise is not just to restore the individual, but it's to restore the family. So just a different slight take on culture has the, the ability to enrich our own understanding of the Christian faith. And... Uh, end of our theological ideas. Well, I know that I just learned something right there. <laughs> uh, because in my context, I do, especially with that story, I, I tended to focus on the individual. And I never thought of the restoration of the family. So I feel like uh, I'm in class right now. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so as far as uh, Latin and Hispanic theology, what do you think are usually the primary concerns? Yes. Uh, as far as uh, a Latino perspective or uh, someone who's, you know, a lot of people call it Latinx. There's a lot of debate about what, what to call uh, what to call us. But uh, just so, uh, so, uh, so, you know, for, from our point of view, Latin America, specifically Latin America, I'm, I'm going to, because in order to talk about Latinos in the United States, I have to talk about Latin America. Right. Uh, Latin America has traditionally been uh, very poor countries, uh, countries that are, uh, we call them third world countries. Uh, our president has other terms for these countries. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but it, it's, uh, but they're known as, as third world countries, the countries where there is a lot of poverty. So in the midst of all this, People ask, where is God? 
Where is God in the midst of our poverty? And what can the church do in the middle of all this poverty? And and so one of the primary concerns has always been, how does God relate to the world? How does God relate to us here in the middle of all this poverty? Uh, because a lot of, for example, missionaries would go and they'd preach a gospel um, and uh, that talked about salvation of the soul. And uh, and all uh, and meanwhile, these people are starving. They they don't have any resources. And so uh, a concern has always been how how do how, how does this relate to poverty in, in, in this con- in the concrete reality of our world? Um, and so by extension here in the United States, a lot of people who have come here who immigrate here, you know, when you when, when someone's an immigrant, they start from the really from the bottom uh, uh, lowest rung on the ladder. They come here. They have they don't know the language, don't know the culture. Don't know. So how do this foreigner fit into this culture? Uh, and so a lot of the concern is uh, in the United States is wait, I, I don't fit in. I, I, I think about this world differently. I, um, yeah. I, I, I uh, and, 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 this, and so those questions arise. What does God look like in the ghetto? Yeah. What does God look like in, in, in these immigrant communities? What does God look like in, 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 in our situation, our concrete reality? And I think that's that's really the, uh, one of the key questions from a Latino perspective, they try to answer, what does God look like in my reality? Mm -hmm. That's great. And it kind of reminds me of something I'll be bringing up in in a little bit where you talked about uh, passive resistance in your book. Mm -hmm. I'll get Mm -hmm. to that in in a second. So one of of the things that I read about in your book was the, uh, the Latino perspective of the American dream. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, uh, that kind of surprised me because when I think of the American dream, I think of the United States. I think of like the 1950s era where, you know, we just came out of the the war and we're starting to like have this huge economy and it's all about uh, living a comfortable life here in the United States. But what, what does that look like in terms of uh, uh, Latin perspective? Yeah, that's, that's an, that's a good question um, because uh, the American dream is 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 also their dream in a lot of ways, and uh, because it, we have to, we, we talk about issues of language and we talk about issues of cultural understanding. With when you talk about the American dream, you're talking about uh, the American continent, right? Uh, and America, you know, it, it it includes Canada, the United States, Mexico, Central America, South America. <laughs> Yeah. So it, it's the, the, there's an understanding, and even in, in education in other countries, they're taught they're American. Uh, this is America. This is uh, you, you could be in El Salvador, you could be in Panama. This is America. Uh, and so right then, there's a different point of view on what it means to be American. And um, and when people uh, when people come to United States, a lot of them have the idea: we'll go to the United States, we'll, we'll you know we'll start uh, we'll start a new life. Uh, and, in, and in a lot of sense, there's also another sense of what it means to be American when people come and cross the border right? or they come on airplanes or come with a visa or whatever, any way they come here. And, uh, and there's a sense that this is uh, there's a sense of a new start, a new beginning. And, uh, and, and in a lot of immigrant communities, when, when, they, when they come to the United States, the American dream is born anew each and every time with every person that comes here. Um, these are people who are going to start uh, 
a lot of them start their own businesses. A lot of them start from scratch. Uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, uh, they'll come here and take jobs uh, that sometimes other people will not want to do. Right. And so uh, every time they come here, it's, there's a sense that the American dream is born anew. We, we have a, a sense of, of dreaming, dreaming anew for our own selves. And, and so, but it includes, it's, 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 a, it's an expansive vision because it includes us. Mm -hmm. uh, we are American also. Right. And I think that's important to remember because we do sort of in the States have that, uh, I think maybe ethnocentric uh, point of view is, is what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And we kind of, you know, we, we just focus on us and we forget about the rest of the continent. <laughs> Like they yeah, matter well, too, so yeah, and, and this is and this is another thing. It's uh, it, it is something natural that happens. You know, we we feel more comfortable with people that are like us, look like us, talk like us, mm -hmm. uh, and that it's just human tendency to be to want to be comfortable, to be, uh, you know, uh, you talk about homeostasis, right? You, where everything's mm -hmm. just everything goes back to its, and we know the routine, we know what's going on, and when. I kind of, uh, an analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's like human personality. You have the extroverts, you have the introverts, right? Right. Uh, they can get on each other's nerves if they don't work right. Cultures in a, in a similar, are, are similar in a certain way. Some cultures have certain different characteristics. And when people come and they don't fit in, there's conflict. Right. They, they get on our, we get on edge, they get on our nerves. Uh, and so this is a, this is a, uh, and this is a, an ongoing dynamic. And, and so uh, the whole notion of ethnocentrism, it, you know, it, there's there's a sense that we are more comfortable with our own people. But then there there comes to be a fine line between being comfortable with our own people. And I don't want to see foreigners. I don't want to see people that are not like me at all. I just I just want to stick to my own kind. And, and I think the scriptures in the Bible call us to a different ethos. Mm -hmm. They call us to an openness. They it, it calls us to hospitality, and right. it's not just uh, and, and it's a really interesting because hospitality in the Bible is welcoming, but at the same time, at some point, it implies you're going to take responsibility. You're going to become, if you look at even in, in, the, in the in the Hebrew scriptures, you know the foreigner had to reside with them. They had freedom, but at the same time, the foreigner had to take on their customs. And mm -hmm. so there's uh, there's there's this back and forth dialogue, back and forth work, and it takes, in my in my opinion, it takes time, a lot of time, yeah. uh, uh, in order for, for for cultures to work together, and it's and it's probably the the biggest challenge of our day and age, right? And I think uh, I got to remember that because that's going to play an important part in a question I I have later. So speaking of, of cultures working together, you know, that doesn't, like you said, it takes time. And then we kind of have to deal with the fact that the Europeans colonized the Americas mm -hmm. and that colonization was not, did not look good all of the time. Yes. Right? <laughs> and so there, and a lot of uh, native cultures were kind of like under the foot of uh European colonization and then so these cultures had to find a way to not really assimilate but also resist a little mm -hmm. bit so yes. that they can they can hold on to their their identity I guess as it were mm -hmm. sorry yeah and, and speaking of Latin America uh, this it happened very different than it happened in the United States uh, in, in the 13 colonies uh, 
and 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 this is the thing like when you look at what happened um when the spanish came to the americas they were um you know it was a, a god and country uh, right. and and their idea of spreading christianity was spreading christianity with the sword yeah the muslim uh, the the spanish got here the year after they had finally kicked out the last muslims out of spain and so that was a type of militant catholicism that went to the americas it, it was we're, we're we're fighting here this is a holy war we're going and we're and we're and we're and we're, we're conquering and they were it's really interesting because uh as as they were settling uh a lot of the catholic missionaries say wait all we need to do is love the natives and they're going to they're going to convert because uh-huh. uh, that's what they experienced in their own in their own lives they just loved them befriended them became a part of them and 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 they experienced conversions and that was a lot of the uh, original catholic priests spoke on behalf of the people okay. of the native people okay. but at the same time the when the spanish came they were conquering it was violent mm-hmm. um and at the same time uh during this whole process there's the people there, there's the the spanish and the native cultures uh they intermixed and it was, and that's that's the result. Uh, the people are, in Latin America are a result of that intermixture. And not only did they did, did the Spanish come and intermix with all these cultures, but the the Spanish also uh, with Portugal and Portuguese, uh, they also had access to Africa, and a lot of slaves were brought from Africa. And over time, it's really interesting how how uh, the Spanish African culture and Amerindian culture, native culture, they it all intermixed, right? And so uh, those are the the when you when someone looks at some of this that's Hispanic or Latino, it's really interesting because um, we're not really a race, we're a mixture of races, and so and, and so someone who's Hispanic Latino they look at the census and they're like, wait, how do I fill this out? I'm <laughs> my temptation is to check all off. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a lot of Latinos do the DNA test now and they come back as ethnically ambiguous, which okay. is which is uh, a fancy word saying, you know, it's just uh, uh, they can't really point out what race they are. They're European. They are Native American from the from the Americas. And they're also African. Right. And, and, it, and it's really interesting how this all plays out um, historically. And and it's not it wasn't a, a, a all pleasant reality like you're saying. I mean, uh, the colonial factor was Spain came and and it's like convert. Um, and so in, in a lot of sense, the people were left saying, well, Europe, the Europeans, you know, uh, there's there's a mentality that happens in colonialism that we don't really know everything. We have to rely on Europe for all, all our all our knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a uh, that's an ongoing principle. We kind of. Uh, uh, still deal with to this day, right? So in that in that colonialization, um, there was uh, something called passive resistance that you talked about, and it was a way of holding on to the uh, cultural identity while also assimilating to, in, in some ways, to the the occupying force. Can you can you give me an example of what that might look like? Sure. Uh, and uh, and this is part of the part of the what happened. I'm just going to give you a very concrete example. Sure. Uh, and uh, I'm my my family. We claim El Salvador and Honduras because that's my my family has lived in those countries. Uh, and so 
there there's it's written in the history books. I was I was reading history books about how uh, the, the the Europeans came and they wanted to build a church, a cathedral, and they tried to get all the natives to come and build a cathedral for them. So they forced them into slavery, and they forced them to work, and the people would just kind of just when you know they would just drop their tools, leave. And and just you know live in the mountains, hide in the mountains, and it was and it was difficult to get them to come back and do the work, right? Uh, and so and and that's a it's kind of like this passive aggressive uh, way of, of doing things, and and uh, and so you see people who have who've taken you know in, in Honduras and in Salvador, for example, they took on language of Spanish. Um, the there's still native languages spoken in those countries, but uh, they mostly took Spanish, but you know, they have a way of co-opting words or co-opting ideas. Um, one one way, for example, in, in Honduras is that we use um, just the word you, for example. And mostly, most people who learn Spanish, they'll learn you as tu. Right. But in, in Honduras, we use vos, which is, a, is, vos is a way of saying you, vos, como estas, you, how are you? And so uh, this, it's interesting that we take this term because it, it's, it was the old Spanish word. It, it's the equivalent of thee and thou. Okay. And, and so uh, how are thee? <laughs> Como <Yeah>. estas vos? <laughs> you know, but we take it. We, it the, the people in Honduras took it. And when they, when they heard the Spanish, you see, they always used it. The, the elite high class used it among themselves. And the, uh, and, the, and the people heard them, you know, so they thought it was like a way of being even more, instead of respect, it was a way of being friendly. Okay. So it, it's, it's, it, there's, there's different ways of talking, you know, use voice with your, with your buddies, those people you're, you are, you're, you're really close friends with. You use tu as a more formal kind of thing. And then there's even another formal way of addressing someone, which is usted, which is like really, really formal. Mm-hmm. And so, but in, in, in ancient Spanish, it was, it was, uh, they call it the reverential voz, which is a way of showing high respect to people. And so, uh, so people, you know, they, it's kind of like they absorbed the Spanish culture, but they, they held on to native, you know, the idea of family, the idea of, of, of closeness to nature. A lot of people wonder why I like going to the mountains. Well, in Honduras, we have lots of mountains and we're out right. in the wilderness all the time. We, we like nature. We like plants. And so there, there's there's a lot of sense that uh, uh, even though we, we're living it with a with oppressive colonial power, that we're still trying to navigate and make our way with it. We uh, we 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 take on terms, we make it our own, and, and and there's a sense of resistance, but at the same time, sense of yeah, I'm 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 taking part of it. And you see it in the United States. A last example I'll give you is with Spanglish. Okay. Uh, a lot of youth, a lot of a lot of the children, they'll take the English language and they'll Spanishize it. So uh, you know, it's uh, example to mop in Spanish is trapear. But we take the English word mop, and we'll and we'll say instead of saying give me the mop, dame el trapeador, we say give me the mapo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah. and so we take we take you know we'll take words and we'll make it our own. We'll take things and we'll make it our own. Right. And, 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 and so there's an interesting, there's still ongoing cultural dialogue and, and, and issues with language that we still work through uh, in, this, in this day and age. That is something that I, I was unfamiliar with. So that's a great, <laughs> but that's a good, like, tangible example. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that. What does that look like in terms uh, of faith or religiously? 
Um, can you give an, an example of, for that? Uh, yes. Um, and it, we, there's a lot of things going on in, in Latin American culture. And, and this is one of my things with, uh, with the way uh, Latin Americans have, have absorbed Pentecostalism. In Latin America, when you say you're evangelical, you really mean Pentecostal. Okay. And I know Pentecostals in the United States are evangelical. We believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm not trying to berate the point there, but there's, there's a distinct expression in Pentecostalism about the good news, about faith in Christ. Yes. And uh, for, uh, for uh, people in Latin America, there's, a, there's what we call an open worldview, a worldview that is open to signs, wonders, the miraculous, um, and, and a worldview that is open to God still working in our midst, and an idea of the Holy Spirit at work, an idea of, uh, of uh, signs and wonders still being available today. And so uh, while, uh, while people in the United States were having debates about cessationism versus, uh, you know, our signs and wonders still for today, uh, people in Latin America, it's like, that's, that's a ridiculous debate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, if you look at the, at the religions of the people that came, uh, if you look at Amerindian spirituality and you look at African spirituality, uh, you look at spiritualities that live it out, that feel the faith, that, uh, that have a sense of, uh, uh, of God in the world, acting in the world, and so the idea of, you know, the, and even there's, there's even, you see it in, in especially in the fusion of uh, what we call Santeria, which is, uh, which is a, you know, a fusion between African and Amerindian spiritualities and the European idea of the saints. Uh, uh-huh. And so uh, there's, a, some people call it syncretism. Uh, and, and so, uh, Pentecostalism, in, in a lot of ways in Latin America, takes draws on those things, draws on spirituality, draws on these things, to the sense that the spirit is at work, the spirit can be felt, the spirit uh, fills our lives in our everyday, the spirit empowers us. And so uh, there's, there's, there's a sense that Pentecostalism, in a lot of ways, uh, is, is, is still drawing into that primal spirituality it's primal native and primal African spirituality. And if you read authors like uh, Walter Hollenweger, that he talks about the, the African roots of Pentecostalism. It's really, it's really an interesting book. And, and I have a sense that a lot of similar things are happening in Latin America with the absorption of, it's an oral culture, narrative culture. Yes. It's an embodied culture. Things have to be embodied. You have to feel things. You have to, you know. And, and so uh, and the, the uh, openness of dreams and visions and so we take the faith, the Christian faith, and sometimes we, we look at our uh, uh, Latin Americans will look at their North American counterparts and say, wait, wait, there's, we're a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. we, we, you know, we believe you know, in all this kind of stuff, but it's, it's, it's expressed a little bit different. I've noticed that about a lot of cultures around the globe that practice Christianity. They look at themselves and then they look at us and maybe are here in the States and they maybe think we're a little bit boring <laughs> or, or sterilized. I don't know. Well, I, I just, I don't think uh, it's, I think we are, you know, and, and it's a good thing. I mean, we're taught to to think, we're taught to use our, yeah. our brain first. We're taught, you know, we're taught to, to release ourselves from our emotions and, and not to be, uh, not to be driven by our emotions. And I, and I think, 
in a lot of, in, in in a lot of ways that is good. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the scriptural text, when you look at all these things, and, and you see the way the Spirit is at work, there is a dimension of Harvey Cox. What Harvey Cox say, primal spirituality, right. uh, a, a primal faith, and and there's there's an element. Harvey Cox liken, likens it to jazz, uh, where you there's room for improvisation, and there's room for for work, and, and there's and there's and it's not so black and white as we would like it to be. There's there's a lot of gray areas, and there's a lot of in between areas, and 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 the spirit is at work. We 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 cannot put the Holy Spirit of God in the box, and we hear yes. that all the time. And and when we do, the spirit finds ways to come out of the box. And, and I'll give you one example was in, is as you look at the charismatic revival of the 1960s. I mean, Pentecostals thought they were it. They spoke in tongues. They were holiness people. And, you know, they thought, you know, uh, speaking tongues was it. Right. And then all of a sudden you have Roman Catholics who experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How can that be? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Presbyterians, Anglicans. And so and, and our our task is really we, we live in this tension between word and spirit these things are 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 in dialogue at work there's uh, you know i i know people that love the word you know people from other faith traditions that love the word but there's they're so word-centered that they cannot uh you know they cannot uh they're not open to the experiences of the spirit and right. so and, but at the same time i know other extremes people who rely on the spirit so much that they <laughs> there's have no biblical uh, foundation whatsoever for their faith or practice so, so that's a difficult uh, place to be. It is, yeah. Um, I want to focus a little bit more on the things that you have in your in your book. And in, you seem to make your book a lot about tackling the issue of how we look at uh, undocumented immigration theologically, really, because we kind of, you know, try to keep it at arm's distance some of the mm-hmm. time so we don't have to Uh, deal with it spiritually but uh, Mm -hmm. this question I have here is sometimes uh, those who are non-Latin, non-Hispanic have a lot of stereotypes about people who are crossing the border illegally and what happens when they get here but your book really kind of painted a a different and stark picture Mm -hmm. and can you give like a realistic account what people go through and even why they leave their countries uh, when they travel up here to, to cross uh, the border. Sure. Yes. Uh, you know, every, I'm one of those people that thinks every single case has to exa- be examined. Yeah. And, and every single case has to be looked at uh, from a very realistic point of view. Uh, I don't, you know, and just, because I know you have a variety of listeners, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm not one of those open border type persons, but at the same time, I think every single case does need to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because uh, that's the thing, as, as someone who works with the Hispanic churches, uh, Hispanic churches in the United States are growing. And, uh, and part of the growth is immigration, whether it's legal immigration or illegal immigration. Um, I knew, uh, I've, I've, I've been in contact with, with the church enough to know and some people in the church have, have confided in me that they, they're here present without documentation. They're here are living, they're here working, they're raising their families here. And, and so um, because we live and work in, a, in, in the church community, 
our the Latin Latino point of view is 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 a lot of times it's very different from, uh, you know, this is what the law says. Yeah, I know this is what the law says, but these people, you know, when and when you get to understand why they came here, there's there's things, complex things such as government. Uh, you have, for example, Venezuela right now, who's under a, a communist dictatorship. Uh, you have places like Honduras, who is who have a who has a right wing uh, dictator. <laughs> he uh, this this man is a president, okay, but he rigged the elections. He was losing the elections, and all of a sudden the computers go off, and when they wow. come back on, he's winning the election. Wow, convenient. Uh, yeah, conveniently, <laughs> and so uh, you still have uh, the patterns of abuse. Uh, and abuse of power still go on in Latin America. So you have that in the backdrop. The second thing you have is criminality. Uh, uh, these people are fleeing violence. These yeah. pe- uh, and under asylum law, a lot of them qualify for asylum uh, because they're 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 fleeing violence, they're fleeing a conflict, and they're fleeing people who tell them if you don't if you don't if you do not become our drug mule, we will kill you. Uh, in in Latin America, a lot of places in Latin America. Uh, working for a drug cartel pays much better than having an honest, decent job. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a sad reality. And so these are people that have integrity enough to say, I can't do this. Uh, and so they'll, 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 you know, they'll, they want to leave. Uh, and another major factor is an environmental factor. Uh, I know people who immigrated here, uh, who told me they left because uh, uh, there was no rain uh, and the coffee coffee and corn crops they had were all died. So they had they were facing either we starve or we go somewhere somewhere where we can work. Because mm-hmm. immigrants don't want to live off the system, they want to work. Right. They want to live to their golden years and be able to retire. They want to they want to provide for their families. And so if you look at the immigrant and you look, they want work. They want to establish their own business. They want to work for their families. These are actually conservative principles. Mm-hmm. These are these are uh, you know and and but you look at the conservatives in the United States and they, and they're the ones most against uh, this uh, a lot of immigrants coming into the country. So it's actually contradictory uh, because they are all small business owners. They want to work anyway. I don't want to get too much into that, but but you but this is the this is these are patterns. That have caused people to want to immigrate. It's not. It's not just. Oh, all of a sudden you get up, and you want to leave your country. Most of these people, if they had a choice, they would have stayed, because mm-hmm. life here is is. They come here and they realize life is difficult. Money doesn't grow on trees. Yeah, that's one of the other things that I I I notice uh, is that some of the stereotypes that exist now. They think that people who come here they get set up with like food stamps or something. They're getting government mm-hmm. assistance. And that's not really the case. And they, they struggle to live out that American dream until maybe like the second or third generation of, of their family. Mm-hmm. And yes. um, I think that's something that gets glossed over because, you know, we we like our scapegoats, unfortunately. Yeah, we and, and that's a, you know, if you read someone like Rene Girard, the scapegoat principle is, is a very real principle. It leads to violence. And it's... Um, and, and it and it hurts a lot of people, and and I think um, uh, scapegoating is a, is a, a, Rene Girard writes a lot about it, especially when it comes to violence and and, yeah. uh, and scapegoating people. So um, th- that's that's the political climate we also live in. Um, 
but and, and that's the thing. I, I, I try to I, I try to show what my experience was like in the church, what it was like growing up in the church and, and why, uh, you know, these people are, are worshiping God alongside me. They're holiness people. Uh, they they love God. They want they want to live honest lives. And, and, and so I was caught in a, in a very difficult place as a pastor and as a as, a, as, a, as a, and, and growing up in, a, in the Hispanic church. These these are people of faith. These are people that I've, I've I've lived some of them twenty years with me, and and here I am, you know, and trying to provide pastoral care for them, trying to uh, care for them. They have families, their children are are, are, are growing up here, and so it it, it really uh, talk about a change in perspective and a, way, a, a different way of seeing things. It really changes our idea of we, we just it, it just uh, nuances who these people are a little bit better. Uh, rather than flattening that, flattening them down and saying, "Oh, you know, stereotyping and having that prejudice uh, uh, about who these people are." Right. Okay. It it just seems to keep going, and it doesn't. And I think that's why it's so important to look at it on, on a deeper spiritual and, and theological level, because then you know we start to see that, oh my gosh, these people are people. Yes. Not they're not they don't they shouldn't have this dehumanizing label put on them. So I think we only have one time for one more question. Unfortunately, I have sure. like it's okay. <laughs> it's I have like fifty more I wanted to get to. <laughs> um, so if this was difficult for me to frame because I, I'm sure. But if there's one or two things that you want others to get from Latin theology and ref- and reflect critically on, including your own work, what might those things be? Uh, those are really good questions. Um, I think one thing that we really need to uh, really need to talk about is uh, uh, who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lot of Latino theologies try to reflect on Jesus and his experience and, and how he lived his life. You know, he was a, a Middle Eastern uh, Jew who uh, his family immigrated to Egypt uh, under severe difficulties. Their life was threatened. Right. And a lot of people say, well, it was part of the Roman Empire. Yes, it was part of the Roman Empire, but it was considered a different province, really a different country. Uh Um, And so Christ moved among cultures. And and when he comes back, you know, people in Galilee were considered a different people than the people in Jerusalem. Uh, they were uh, some of them. They were considered like a mixed race. They weren't. Uh, enti- pers- they were not Jewish enough for the Jews. Uh, and so, how do how do we look at Christ and how does cr- that Christian reality affect our life today? Because that's a question that a lot of people are trying to answer now. I mean, you look at Black Lives Matter. You look at uh, uh, you know all these uh, all the things that are that are going on in our culture uh, with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, George mm-hmm. Floyd you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, Christ, the life of Christ, we have to live in intercultural dialogue and we have to look at Christ. That's the center of our faith. And Christ lived in different cultures. And not only that, I mean, what did Christ, in in my, in my thinking, you know, he left heaven, come down to an earthly realm. You know, he had to eat Mediterranean food. Uh, and he had to learn their sense of humor. And, and, and this is what we call the incarnation. 
And so what does that mean when my neighbor is African-American? What does that mean when my neighbor may be Vietnamese? What does that mean when my neighbors are maybe Greek? Uh, how can I build bridges instead of burning those bridges? And I think that's what call, Christ calls us to, because we are to incarnate the gospel in different cultures. Uh, uh, and uh, another thing I think that's really important is uh, to look, uh, we, we must look at the concrete reality uh, of our day and age. I think, uh, and, and especially the people on the margins, people who, who we might consider that are poor, are marginalized, uh, some will call them oppressed. What, is, uh, what does it look like? What does faith look like from their point of view? Uh, we really, uh, I think my book really invites us to look at that. We, we have to look at, at, at these concrete realities. Um, you know, uh, and I'll just tell you, you know, I'm, I'm Pentecostal, from, uh, Pentecostal and, and I've come to realize here living in the United States when I visited the places where the specific, for example, the Church of God of Cleveland, Tennessee was 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 uh, was born. These are marginal places in uh, in the Appalachia. And uh, as. And it seems that the, the people came down from the mountains and they've entered mainstream society. They've, a lot of them have become middle class. And because you look at those pictures from the mountains and, and you see people walking around barefoot. Yeah. Uh, they live in single, you know, uh, one room houses. Uh, and so, and, and you, and you wonder, you know, how, you know, we've Pentecostals have, have experienced this upward mobility. And, 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 and I can't help but think how has this affected our look? Because, I went, and even in, in Cleveland, Tennessee, the headquarters for the Church of God, the Church of God headquarters used to be on the other side of the tracks, on the poorest part of the town. And and this these were the people that formed the original Church of God. And then eventually they move across the tracks and they build their headquarters in the nicest part of town. And and, and so you see this movement gaining res- uh, acceptability. And, and, it, and it creates questions for me about, you know, how much of our, my spirituality should be a spirituality that lets go of materialism? Uh, how much is upward mobility? Yeah, I know we all want to be upward. You know, we, I want to provide for my children, my family, but how much is too much? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and uh, what does modesty mean for, for me, for my life, for my family? How can, I, how can I have a spirituality that still remembers where my people came from and, and uh, doesn't think, think too highly of, our, of, of myself or ourselves? Um, so I think these are questions that um, that I hope people can read my book if they read if they want to read it and, and, and kind of ask themselves um, because they do affect the way that uh, the Christian faith is expressed. That's all amazing, but and I think upward mobility, especially and and what modesty is, that's something that I I think about a lot too, and it's you know because if I'm gonna go preach the good news or whatever, I'm going to have to be able to bring it to everybody. And how can I identify with everybody? You know, I can't be sitting in a $2 million home and how is that going to look when I'm volunteering in a soup kitchen or, or things mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, those, those are questions for our day and age. And, and especially in light of, you know, the prosperity gospel, I know God's going to bless us. He promises to bless us, prosper us where we are, but, you know, when you look at the prosperity gospel and when people give, you know, who, you know, I, I don't want to name name names, but you, why do you need a private jet? <laughs> why do you yeah. need two private jets? Um, and, and so it kind of 
you know, it, it kind of, I think we need some kind of grounding. And, uh, and I think, um, especially if we're going to do theology, we just can't do it in the clouds. We, it, it's, it's, it's a theological grounding also. We, we must be able to relate to the average, to the average person, to the average Joe, to the average Jose. Uh, right. And so, <laughs> and, and so, uh, because Christ was a, a person for all people. From the highest, yes. of, from kings to the lowest of men, you know, the lowest of people. He was, he related to everybody. He related to the Samaritan woman. He related to the the Phoenician woman who was non-Jewish. She was, she was in the northern part of. Another one of the great things that you discussed was how the Holy Spirit works to create uh, a hybridity between uh, the self and otherness. Mm-hmm. Um and what that means in the life of the undocumented immigrant. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure, that's a good question. But let me tell you this. Um, the question about the hybridity and the Holy Spirit, this is, this is something that I've thought about. Uh, we, are, we are holiness people. We are people who, who, who love the Lord with all our hearts. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, there's a movement of the Holy Spirit similar to Christ's movement, where Christ incarnates himself in the culture uh, or, and in different cultures through his people, the Holy Spirit also enters the reality of every human being. Uh, as, as someone who's Pentecostal, I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work already preparing the way. So when I speak to somebody about Jesus, the Holy Spirit would have worked in their lives so that Jesus exactly. can relate to them in some way. Yeah. And so uh, the Holy Spirit... It, fills our spaces, fills our holy spaces. And, and in Pentecostals, we have a, a tendency uh, uh, sometimes to, th- to think just of the transcendent part of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so the Spirit is uh, holy, other. Uh, the reality is that the Holy Spirit is not just transcendent. He is imminent. He is present. He is here now. So there's a, there's a back and forth movement that happens and it's constantly going where uh, the Holy Spirit is present in my reality. And, and, and this is the thing. The Holy Spirit is holy. He is God, all-powerful, almighty, holy other. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit makes himself present in my reality and my mundane, banal reality uh, and, 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 and fills these spaces. And so in, in, in Pentecostalism, this is a sense of hope. Uh, the transcendent God being imminent, being fully present, being, uh, uh, and, and Pentecostals speak about the experience of spirit baptism, uh, where they will experience the Holy Spirit, where they will speak in tongues, when they will experience the miraculous. And so there's, there's, there's the hope of a kingdom. And this happens, uh, and, and, and in my, you know, and when I was doing pastoral ministry, this was, uh, this was happening in the ghetto. This was happening among poor immigrant communities, and this was happening even among undocumented immigrants, people who were uh, who were there present. And and but the other extreme of that, you know, you have the, the emphasis on transcendent, holy other. The other extreme is, you know, Holy Spirit is whatever I want the Holy Spirit to be. Uh, you know, it just reinforces my humanity without calling me to change, without calling me to transformation. And, but there's a there's a sense that the Holy Spirit is active, is moving, calling me to a better life. The Holy Spirit is calling all humanity in the mundane towards that holiness, towards that yeah. holy other. 
And so uh, the Holy Spirit, in, in a sense, reaches down and brings us uh, and raises his community. So, And that's the reason why Pentecostals will talk about the sanctified life. That's what we'll talk about, the higher life. That's what we'll talk about, uh, uh, you, you know, just living in the purpose of God. And, uh, and, at, and at the same time, uh, you know, uh, and another thing is we just— uh, the Holy Spirit is not just any whim that I have. And I think that's another extreme that, that people enter into. It's just, uh, I feel, uh, you know, I, I feel this, that's the Holy Spirit must be talking. And, and I think that the transcendent nature of God must keep us aware that we are just limited, finite beings, graced with the presence of God and graced with the manifestations of the Holy Spirit of God. But I think in that, in that, in that dialogue, that we, uh, we, the Holy Spirit can also push us to produce a better society, uh, because the, uh, th through the Holy Spirit we are we are empowered to make a difference. We're empowered to live in the ghetto, and and these are Christians. You know, I pastored in New York. I pastored in the inner city, of New York. Uh, we these are Christians living in this in these communities, and and, and communities that are that are filled with drug addiction. Uh, you know, prostitution, uh, all these things, and the Holy Spirit, in and it always calls these people out from out from the world into the church, in order to go back into the world to evangelize, to to, to proclaim the good news. And so, um, my reflections on this on on this hybridity, this this openness, we we are called to mimic that. To live a better life, but also be involved in the community in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see that uh, uh, the people that you interviewed, how big of a deal being part of the community in doing that in, in their local church was for them because they got um, called by the Holy Spirit and then mm -hmm. their their faith kind of really maybe took off or solidified and they needed to be part of continuing that, uh, I guess, pattern in their own mm -hmm. community. Yes. So. Uh, and, and that's the thing. I mean, it's as Pentecostals, we're people who live this. Uh, we live the, you know, uh, uh, I can, I can, I mean, I just gave a few people that I interviewed, but there's more. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and so, even the the scriptures are filled with people who were, you know, and, and now I'll, one of them is uh, the the slave girl, Naaman's slave girl, mm -hmm. and and so Naaman, uh, he's this general, right? This, uh, and and a little slave girl told tells him, hey, I know about this prophet, and 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 so uh, she's Jewish and tells him about the, the the man of the Lord, and he goes, and we know the story. Naaman's healed, but to me, I mean, what is this? little jewish girl you know slave girl talking to naaman she's addressing him like right. how dare you like who do you think you are <laughs> yeah and and so and 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 the same thing in our communities i remember you know one of the testimonies that that i heard in the church that i was pastoring was this little undocumented lady who uh, this businessman has cancer she she asked him to pray for him she prays for him and the man's healed right and and so you have a sense of the spirit of God is present and powering, and and uh, you know and later this man has a Bible study in his home. He you know a lot of things happen, but God took this insignificant person out of status in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we and, 
And, and so who are we to limit what the spirit of God does? Right. Exactly. It reminds me of the, uh, a passage like that in one of Daniel Migliore's book uh, of about systematic theology, where God is always making the nobody somebody. Mm. So, uh, yes. yeah. So, um, Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think that uh, those were all of the uh, questions that I have for you today. And I, I really appreciate it. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because um, I really think it's important for people who, who don't understand others, if they want to understand others, to really uh, take a walk in their shoes, basically. Mm -hmm. Walk yes. a mile in their shoes. Yes. And, and this is one of the ways that we can do that. Um, yes. So at I least, mean, go ahead. We we see our savior, right? And yeah, he was he was the prime example of that. He walked the mile in humanity. He walked, you know, he walked a lot of miles. Cross. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of That's miles. That's right. On behalf of humanity, and yeah, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so that that in itself is a principle that should invite us. Uh, the humility of Christ should invite us also to display the same thing. You know, I know it's uncomfortable with unsaved people. They, they cuss, they, you know, they smoke, they drink, they'll, they'll, they'll say bad jokes, you know, but that's, somehow at some point we're going to have to relate to them and, 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 and be that hope, be that light, uh, be that witness. And, and this means that some of them may not ever uh, accept Christ. Right. You know, Christ was rejected by some of those people he came to serve. And and that's that implies a lot of brokenness in our Christian faith, and I don't think, uh, and I think sometimes we're so used to a triumphalistic faith that we're not used to we, we don't it, that it, it's it's too challenging for us sometimes. I'm gonna close it here, and uh, again, I want to say how much I appreciate you taking your time to do this, and um, I still, you know, there might be a part two if you're ever willing to do that down the road because. I think the more I learn about um, this area, the more I'm going to want other people to know, because that's just my personality. Sure. I'm excited. I want you to be excited <laughs> about it. Sure. Well, I, well, thank you for the invitation, Tim. I really appreciate uh, you having me here. I really appreciate uh, your, your questions, your curiosity, and, uh, and I also appreciate your scholarship. I know you, you're a person who's, who's wanted to learn more, wanted to do more, and I, I, I uh, thank you for having me uh, on this podcast. You're welcome. Thank you again. I'll see you in class. All right. All right. All right. Bye. Take care. You too.